Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. If you are a guest at Christ Fellowship this morning, we're so happy that you have joined with us. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of the Pew Bibles and you can turn to page 910. If you are a guest and you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible with you as, as our uh, special gift, gift to you this morning. Acts chapter 2 is where we will be. Well, he was a, a normal, everyday dude. This guy was a fisherman. He was a guy like, like many people that you would meet in this valley. And he was a man who was chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to be one of the original disciples. And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but, but Jesus gave this guy a, a nickname. He gave this disciple a nickname. He called him Rocky. Rocky. You say, wait a minute. Where was there a Rocky in the Gospels? Well... The Lord Jesus Christ named or referred to him as Petros. We know it as Peter. And the, the Greek word Petros means rock. And so one of the original disciples was none other than, than Rocky. Jesus said to Peter, he said, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And as you probably know, Peter did not live up to the name that the Lord Jesus Christ gave him. He did not live up to the title of rock. Here's a man who battled intense pride. He, he is a man, and some of you will relate to this, he, he had a special gift for putting his foot in his mouth, and he did it often. He is one who, who fell asleep in the garden before Jesus made his way to the cross. He is the one who chopped off the ear of the servant during the scene as Jesus made his way to the cross. At the scene of his arrest. And probably the worst thing that we find the Apostle Peter doing is he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. Not once, not twice. But this fisherman denies the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Yet, despite his intense failures, Jesus used this man in an absolutely astonishing way. First, he was a, a bold proclaimer of the truth. And we will see that today as we look at perhaps his most famous sermon, speaking of Peter. He took the gospel to the Gentiles, and he was also a bold missionary to the Jews. In Acts chapter 2, the section of Scripture that we will look at together today, we find pre Peter preaching his first sermon. And the Bible tells us that as a result of Peter's preaching this sermon, about 3,000 people came to the Christian faith. Now, I did a little bit of research it didn't take very long. I typed G-O-O-G-L-E. You learn a lot when you type in those letters. And I typed in Nooksack, Washington. Population. And I learned that back in 2016, the population of Nooksack was about 1,500 people. Are you with me? So on the day that this 
This messed up individual, the Apostle Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, the one who Jesus chose to sovereignly use in a, in a mighty way, he preached the sermon that we will look at, only a few verses of it this morning, and two nooksacks came to Christian faith. Can you imagine? 3,000 people are converted as a result of this sermon. It's one of the most powerful sermons that you will ever read. And in one of the, the lines in the sermon, which is found in Acts 2, verse 21, you can look at it with me, reads as follows. Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. You have probably heard Christians use language like this. If you are a Christian, there is a strong likelihood that you have used language like this. If you are not a Christ follower this morning, it, there is a high probability that one of your Christian friends has used the language of Acts chapter 2, verse 21. They have had the, the boldness, you might argue the audacity, to come up to you and ask, Hey, uh, are you saved? Are you saved? Whenever the Bible speaks about being saved, or if you ask someone if they're saved, this is exactly what should pop into your mind. You should ask this question, saved from what? That's exactly what should pop in your mind. The word saved comes from a little Greek word that means to be delivered or rescued from sin. And so when your Christian friend asks, are you saved? That's exactly what they're asking. Have you been delivered? Have you been rescued from sin? And have you been delivered or rescued from eternal judgment? That's exactly what Peter meant to say. And that's exactly what your Christian friends mean as well. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, Sirs? What must I do to be saved? And here is the response they receive. And it, it, it is one of the shortest, most powerful set of words you will ever hear. They respond by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You can only imagine what was running through the Philippian jailer's head. That's it? That's all I have to do? I have a, a friend who I love a great deal, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and I essentially told him, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he said, that's too simple. There's got to be something I have to do. Don't I have to give money? Don't I have to do good works? Don't I have to go to church? You see how we, we smuggle in all of these works as a part of the salvation equation when Paul and Silas and the Apostle Peter remind us, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved from the power of sin. That is to say, we will be saved from the daily effects of sin. We will be saved from the penalty of sin, most notably the almighty wrath of God. And for all of the people who determine to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will one day be saved from sin's very presence. And when a, when a preacher says, you will be saved from sin's very presence, you will be saved from the power 
of sin. You'll be saved from the penalty of sin. The whole church family should say, Amen. It worked. You might call Acts chapter 2 verse 21 the declaration of salvation. This very important declaration invites not just a few people, not just white people, not just black people, not just Asian people, not just Puerto Ricans, not just Hispanics. This verse invites everyone. No one is excluded. Everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But the passage I want to unpack for you this morning involves more than a mere declaration of salvation. It's more than a mere declaration of salvation. I want to move to the description of how this salvation comes to pass. And it's found in this chapter, Acts chapter 2. Now, here at Christ Fellowship, we have a tradition that when we read the, the passage of Scripture that we will study together, we, we stand together. And the reason we do this is we, we stand and we read it to show respect and honor to the Word of God. So I want to invite you to stand as we read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. And may I remind you as we read, this is the eternal, infallible, authoritative Word of God. Peter says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Thank you, Father, for the chance to celebrate on this Easter day. We celebrate the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that it was a, a bodily resurrection. It was a real resurrection. It happened in time and space. It was a historical fact. And so, Lord, we, we remember the great reality of the resurrection. And today, as we, as we come together and learn some of the implications of the resurrection, my heart goes out to, to those who are here who are not yet followers of Christ, that you would do a, a mighty work in someone's heart. And God, I would pray to even a greater extent that you would do a mighty work in, in many people, in many hearts today, that you would do something similar to what you did in the days of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 when many people came to the Christian faith. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be here in our midst that you would do a mighty work of grace so that, so that God would be exalted, so that he would be praised, and that lives would be changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to make an uh, initial statement that for some of you might sound counterintuitive, and for some of you it might even sound a little weird. And the statement is this. In order to be saved... Death needs to be defeated. 
In order to be saved from the the power of sin and the penalty of sin and the presence of sin, death needs to be defeated. Let me say it another way. In order to be saved, death needs to be dethroned. Death needs to be destroyed. And so the Bible tells us four very important things that, that should shock every person. As I reviewed through the message this morning, the thought occurred to me that these four statements that I'm going to share with you in just a moment should shock every boy and every girl as young as they come, all the way up to the most seasoned and mature Christ follower. These four statements should also shock every person who doesn't consider themselves to be religious. It should shock and astonish you if you are not yet a Christ follower. Here are the four statements. Number one, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Think about the magnitude of that. We don't measure up. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Secondly, the book of Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 says, The soul who sins shall die. So, I don't measure up and the soul who sins shall die. Third, the wages of sin or the penalty of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And finally, and most seriously, the sins of every rebel. That person will face the almighty, infinite wrath of God. And so here's what needs to happen. In order to be saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin and the presence of sin, death needs to die. And so the title of the message this morning is The Death of Death. And the focal point of what I'm calling the death of death involves the central character of Scripture. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, the central character is not Solomon. It is not the Apostle Paul. It is not Abraham. The central character is not Jonah, and it's not any of the the apostles. The central character from start to finish is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter helps us to understand that. He proclaims a message in the book of Acts that is absolutely riveting and life-changing. This is a message that has the power to to break the power of sin. This message has the power to liberate rebels. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, you, you, you have not even met me. And if you have met me, all you did was shake my hand, say, it's nice to see you here. We're so glad you came to Christ Fellowship. But you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I have thought. Well, it's my privilege and honor to to tell you this morning that this message of the gospel has the power to liberate the most radical rebel. This message has the power to to heal your marriage and to transform your relationships. This is a message that Peter proclaims that will destroy death forever. But he says something that we dare not miss. And what he says reorients our minds and our hearts to help us recall Who is the central character of Scripture? And it's found in verse 22. Peter says this, Men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, I want you to begin with me by by noting the first highlighted word. It's the word here. And as you read the word in your, your English translation, it's sometimes difficult to determine where the commands are. And most of us, when we read this verse in verse 22, we'll just kind of think, Peter's saying, all right, guys, listen up. I have something important for you to say. But in the Greek language, here's what we learn. The Greek word translated here is a command. Many of you are, are parents. And you know what it's like when you, when you tell your small child... No cookies before dinner. Now, that is not a suggestion, is it? And if, if, if a four-year-old decides to violate the command of mom or dad, there will be consequences. It might mean no dinner. It might mean you go to bed early. There's some kind of a consequence involved. Here, we're, we're talking more than just cookies before dinner. These are eternal realities. These are life-changing realities. And so, as Peter addresses this, this large crowd of people, no doubt there were far more than 3,000. Not every person came to, to become a Christian on this day. But think about Nooksack. 1,500 people. Now double it. Now add many, 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 many more. And here's the crowd that Peter preaches to. Here is a command. Here... O men of Israel. This is something that can't go in one ear and out the other. And so listen to Peter as he introduces the one who will destroy death. He introduces the the central character of Scripture. First he says, he's from Nazareth. And these listeners in, in this cultural climate, they would have understood exactly what he meant. Nazareth is a, a village in Lower Galilee. And this is exactly where Jesus grew up as a child. And then he says that he was not only a man, he is a man. He said he is a man, but he also was a man. Jesus Christ, as Ken said earlier, was born of the Virgin Mary. And he grew up and became a man. And he is still, as he's seated on the right hand of the Father, he is still a man. There's a Puritan theologian, one of the most articulate writers in the United Kingdom, if not the world. His name was John Owen. And he asks a critical question that gets to the heart of the identity of Jesus. And here's the question. He says, what does the scripture teach concerning the person of Jesus Christ? He would ask it this way, hey man, who is this guy? Well, what's the bottom line of Jesus? Now here's his answer. That he is truly God and perfect man, partaker of the natures of God and man in one person between whom he is a mediator. Here's what Owen is trying to help us understand in, in part. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He has not always been a man because in eternity past he was 
with the Father and with the Spirit. He's always existed. But at a point in time, in what theologians refer to as redemptive history, he became a human being. Notice also, he was not only a man and is a man. Peter says, he is attested to you by God. That's a word we probably don't use an awful lot in our culture. But it's a word that means to reveal clearly. It means to put on display. It means to to make public. And so what Peter's trying to say here is, listen up, guys. This is very important. This is a command. Jesus Christ from Nazareth, a man... God put him on display. He put him on public display so every person can see and understand who he is. And then he says that Jesus performed mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And so Peter says, listen up. The God man from Nazareth was put on by display to do all these amazing things. And these things were accomplished in the power of God. I find it interesting that the end of this verse, he, he concludes with these words, as you yourselves know. In other words, there were people in the crowd, they already knew this. They knew all of what Peter had just described. In fact, some of these people had been in the same room or on the Sea of Galilee, or some other place in that region, in that geographical region where they saw Jesus perform these wonders and these miracles. But the greatest demonstration of God's power would come on Easter morning, and it would radically change the trajectory of human history. This morning, I want you to see three things that the death of death involves. The first is found in verse 23, which says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. First, I want you to see that the death of death involves a sovereign plan. And as we take a few minutes to learn about the sovereign plan, I want you to see that there are three critical components concerning the sovereign plan. Component number one, notice with me that this plan was grounded in eternity past. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. There's a few things we have to understand here. First, Peter says Jesus was delivered up by God. He was delivered up by God. That involves, and the word specifically means surrendered. That is, Jesus said, God said of of Jesus the Son, here he is. I deliver him up. God intentionally surrendered his son into the hands of these rebels. But then we see, as Peter says, it is according to the definite plan of God. The word definite means to appoint to a point. And that word plan comes from a Greek word that means a series of steps that will be carried out or a set of goals that will be accomplished. Then notice Peter says it was according to the foreknowledge of God. It's very interesting to me that in 1 Peter chapter 1, the same writer, the same preacher says of Jesus that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
Now, here's what we have to get straight in our minds. When the Bible speaks of foreknowledge, this is more than mere foresight. And it is certainly true that God knows what Jesus will do. God knows what Jesus will experience. God knows that Jesus will experience death on a wooden cross. But it's more than mere foresight. The language of foreordination or foreknowledge has to do with decrees. God decrees that Jesus will die on the cross for sinners. Acts 4.28 talks about that decree that that he will be crucified and he will be handed over according to God's plan of predestination. And so first, notice that the sovereign plan is grounded in eternity past. This is something that God has known from all eternity and planned from all eternity. Second, this plan is guaranteed. This plan is guaranteed. Whatever God plans will most certainly come to pass. There's a school of theology, and we won't get too in-depth here, but there's a school of theology that essentially says that Jesus came to, to bring in the kingdom. And what did the Jews do? The Jews rejected him, and so God scratched his head and said, Rats! Well, I guess we'll have to go to the cross. And that's not at all what happened, is it? God in eternity past ordained that Jesus Christ would die on the cross. This plan is guaranteed. Third, I want you to see that this plan involved, as we've already learned this morning, it involved the death of the Son of God. In order for death to die, the Son of God must die first. This plan, you see, was a a divine necessity. It was a divine means of securing the salvation of God's people. This is a a sovereign plan. But the sovereign plan leads us to something very interesting, is what I like to refer to as a sinister plot. A sinister plot. Look at that sinister plot with me again in verse 23. And it's the latter portion of verse 23. I'll read it in its entirety. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, And the foreknowledge of God, notice the sinister plot. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I think many of you will be absolutely interested in this. Because we have to ask this question, who is responsible for this sinister plot? Many of you are old enough to remember. It's hard to believe. I think it's been maybe even over 10 years ago that Mel Gibson, the actor and movie producer, produced a movie that became an astonishing success called The Passion of the Christ. And not only in the movie, but also in pre-interviews and post-interviews, Mel Gibson did something that got him in big trouble. Do you remember? He implied, he implied that the Jews crucified Jesus. And so all the the media pundits begin to say, oh, we knew it all along. Mel Gibson's an anti-Semite. He said that the Jews crucified Jesus. I find that interesting, the response that he received, because evidently most people forgot that old, famous Negro spiritual. You remember the one I'm referring to? Were you there? When they crucified my Lord. And the implication of that song is, and I'm not going to point because my mom taught me not to point. But if I did have that freedom, I would point at you, Brie. 
I'd point at you, Ethan. I'd point at you, Betsy. Actually, I would point at every one of you, and you know what they teach about pointing. Whenever you point, three fingers are pointing back at you. So I point the finger at me. How many of you were there when they crucified my Lord? We were all there. We all would have been willing participants. And so the response to Mel Gibson was astonishing to me as he implied that the the Jews crucified Jesus. Let's sort out the details. What does the Bible say? The Bible says the Jews crucified Jesus. And we're not going to look at all the texts, but there are many that indicate that the Jews crucified Jesus. And my suspicion would be there are very few Jews here this morning. And so you're, wow, I'm off the hook because I'm a Gentile. Not so fast. It is true that the Jews crucified Jesus, but the Gentiles also crucified Jesus. I want to have you turn with me to Acts chapter 4, just one page over, maybe two pages over, and look at Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. We've established that the Jews were involved in crucifying Jesus, but Acts 4, 27 and 28 says, Truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your plan had predestined to take place. There are other scriptures that clearly reveal that it was not only the Jews, but it was also the Gentiles. It was a team effort. We were there. We were all there when they crucified our Lord. But Peter takes it one step further. He says that Jesus was crucified by a certain kind of individual. And this describes all of those unconverted Jews and Gentiles and all of us, he says they were lawless men. They were lawless men. You crucified, verse 23 says, and killed by the hands of lawless men. The phrase lawless means a a person who lives against the law. It means a person who breaks the law to fulfill their own desires. And this is exactly who they were. And it's exactly who we are apart from the grace of God found in Jesus. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Who is responsible for the sinister plot? I want to tell you this morning that it it was God, as we learned, who established the sovereign plan. He established the plan, but the Jews and the Gentiles executed the plan. It was God's idea for Jesus to die on the cross, but it was the Jews and the Gentiles who carried out the plan. This is the way my friend Bruce Ware puts it. God is to be Praised. He is praiseworthy for establishing this plan to save the nations. But the Jews and the Gentiles who crucified him, they are blameworthy for executing the second member of the Godhead. They are blameworthy for killing the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen together the, the sovereign plan. We've seen the sinister plot. But I want to conclude on this high note by turning your attention to verse 24 as we look at the risen Savior. Read verse 24 with me. And be astonished at these words. God raised him up. Can you believe it? God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here in one verse, we see, we have firsthand knowledge where we, we, we recognize the power of God on display. 
There are three ways that I see the power of God on display. And the first is found in that little phrase, God raised him up. I have several verses in my notes that we won't go into the detail this morning. But throughout the pages of the New Testament, we see over and over and over again that God raised him up. The word that Peter uses here, God raised him up. That's a word that means to resurrect someone. To resurrect someone. Now, it's important that I tell you that this was prophesied in the pages of the Old Testament. Would you hold your finger in Acts 2 and be so kind to turn with me to the book of Psalms? Turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 16. And there's so many of the, excuse me, these prophecies that we could look at. I want to have you look at one with me. Psalm chapter 16, beginning in verse 9. And think about the Messiah. The Messiah who, who will come in the future. Psalm 16, verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter refers to that later in Acts chapter 2. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The fact of the matter is that over and over again in the pages of the Old Testament, the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that God will raise him up, is prophesied. It is predicted. And then it is also promised in the New Testament... During Jesus' earthly ministry, you remember that, that moment when Jesus is with his friends and he said, Hey, listen, I want to tell you, destroy this temple and it will be raised up in three days. And his disciples, they all scratched their bald heads and said, What in the world is he talking about? And then when Jesus was raised from the dead, they scratched their heads again and said, Ah, why didn't we realize it? Jesus promised this would happen. And then, of course, it was proclaimed by the apostles over and over again, that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. There's a second thing I want you to see. God not only raised him up, but we see the power of God on display when God raised death. That's R-A-Z-E-D. He raised death. Some of you probably saw uh, the anniversary of the destruction of the kingdom. Did you see that online a few days ago? And it was just like, when I watch the kingdom imploding, is that the right word? Implode, not explode, whatever. They, they, they raised it, right? When I see that, I always think, like, there's the concourse I walked on with my dad and brother a hundred times to go see the Mariners, right? Memories, poof, they're gone. What did those guys do? They raised the kingdom. Poof, it's gone. What happens here? God raised death. Look again at verse 24. God raised him up. And then Peter says, loosen the pangs of death. That comes from a Greek word that means to destroy. He destroyed death. Death died. When God raised Jesus from the grave, he destroyed death and he destroyed the works of the devil. I want you to listen to a verse in 1 John chapter 3, 8. It's an amazing verse that says that the reason the Son of God appeared, I want to put a dot, dot, dot there. Ask yourself, why did Jesus appear? 
And I, I can vividly remember the first time I read this book, and it blew my mind. The reason that, that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that he did. Finally, we see the power of God on display because God revealed his mighty strength. Look at the end of verse 24. Peter says, because it was not possible for him, that is Jesus, to be held by it. And the Apostle Paul refers to this amazing power in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll put it on the screen for you to see. See, He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In that section in Ephesians, if we could go to that, Tom, let's look at that verse together. We see all of these words that, that Paul points to the, the greatness and the power of God. Immeasurable greatness of his power. Great might. He raised him from the dead. And so when the disciples witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, they were eyewitnesses to not only the resurrection, they were eyewitnesses to the majesty and the glory and the power of God. May I suggest this morning that the resurrection is not, as many people say today, a myth. The resurrection is not a fable. It is not a mere story. The resurrection is a physical reality. It is a physical reality. And so as we contemplate these things, as we contemplate the sovereign plan and the sinister plot and the risen Savior, I want to ask a question and have you, have you think about it deeply. And the question is this. Is anyone listening is anyone listening? One of my dear friends came up to me a few days ago, and she, please understand, she was just teasing me, I think. She said, I just wanted to tell you last week, Pastor Dave, I, I fell asleep for the whole sermon. Okay. This would be the time to wake up. Is anyone listening? I want to tell you a story that indicates how important it is to, to pay attention. And that's exactly what Peter says here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Pay attention. On January the 12th, 2007, a man stood next to a trash can at the metro station in Washington, D.C. He wore a, a simple t-shirt, a pair of jeans, and a baseball cap. And he removed his violin from a small case, and he placed the open case in front of him and faced the oncoming pedestrian traffic. And then the man began to play. The man played six classical pieces that took roughly 43 minutes. And here's the question. Would anyone in that busy metro station take the time to stop and listen to this man? The fiddler standing against the wall was not your normal everyday street performer. His name was Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians on the planet. He was a, mu a musical prodigy at the age of four, if you can believe that. And now he is an accomplished virtuoso. He packs out concert halls all over the world astronomical prices to get in to hear this man play. And so for over 43 minutes, 
Joshua Bell played masterpieces that have endured for centuries. And, to make matters more interesting, he played this music on one of the most valuable violins ever made. Bell's violin is a Stradivarius, handcrafted in 1713. This violin is worth $3.5 million dollars. On that Friday back in 2007, over 1,000 people had a free front row ticket to a beautiful concert of one of the world's most famous musicians, but only a few people stopped to pay attention. The death of death involves a sovereign plan. It involves a sinister plot and a risen Savior. My question for you today is, do you have the eyes to see and savor and hear this glorious reality? Or are you like the people in the metro station and you walk by one of the most accomplished musicians on this planet? Do you fail to see the power of the resurrection? In the New Testament, in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 10, it says that Jesus abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so with Jesus' resurrection, he defeated death. With Jesus' resurrection, he killed death. Indeed, this is the death of death. As we close this morning, I want you to look with me It's some implications of this resurrection because one of the roles of a pastor is to play the role of an attorney, believe it or not. One of my roles is to anticipate objections. And some of you are here this morning going, it is 1130, and I can't wait to get out of here. I want to go home and have a good meal. I want to watch the Mariners. I'm tired of being here. This doesn't mean anything to me. It has no practical relevance. I will guarantee someone's thinking that. And so my job is to show you the implications. Implication number one, when Jesus Christ defeated death, he crushed the penalty of sin. That is to say, he took the penalty for sin that I deserved. He took the penalty of sin that you deserved. I deserve to go to hell. You deserve to go to hell. Jesus crushed that penalty on the, on the cross and through the power of his resurrection. Number two, he crushed the power of sin. Jesus crushed the power of sin. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This morning, if you are not a Christ follower... I can be certain that you have friends who are Christ followers and you see something different in them. And I'll give you a hint. It's not because they're a good person. It's because they have received grace from Jesus. That's what enables them to live the way they do. Number three, and we've seen this, that Jesus on the cross and because of his resurrection, when he defeated death, he crushed the devil. Here's another verse that refers to the crushing of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. By the way, I want to say just uh, and allude to this. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. In Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, how many of you saw it? Do you remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane 
when, when Jesus stepped on the snake. I don't know how many conversations I got in with people. And people said, that's not biblical. That's not in the text. No, it's not in the text. What was Gibson trying to do? He was trying to show that Jesus defeated the snake. He crushed the devil. And so in Hebrews 2.14, the Bible says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he gave himself likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus Christ crushed the devil. Fourth, when Jesus defeated death, he cleared a path for you to know God. In one of my favorite verses in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this prayer to his father. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That may come as a shock to you this morning, that you can know the living God. How? By believing in Jesus, who lived the life that you could never live and died a death that you deserve to die. And God raised him from the grave. Now, You can know the living God. Number five, when Jesus defeated death, he cleared a path for you to worship God. When Jesus defeated death, he cleared a path for you to serve the living God. When Jesus defeated death, he cleared a path to walk freely before God. How can sinners stand in the presence of God? By being justified by grace alone through faith alone. Number eight, When Jesus defeated death, he cleared a path away from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 speaks of waiting for his son from heaven, whom he, God, raised from the dead. Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. And finally, when Jesus defeated death, he cleared a path for you and I to spend eternity with him In the new heavens and the new earth. And this is a verse that blows my mind. I hope it blows yours as well. In 2 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, Knowing that he who raised Jesus Christ will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That is to say, because God has raised Jesus from the grave, he will raise everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, will you be there? Will you be there? On this Easter Sunday, we celebrate the the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The death of death involves a sovereign plan, a sinister plot, and a risen Savior. And once again, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. You see, the gospel of Jesus is the most important message that you will ever hear. But it is a message that must be received. Have you embraced this Messiah? And what that means is, have you, have you turned from your sin and have you turned to the Savior? That's what salvation involves. Repenting, turning from your sin and turning to the Savior and then living for the glory of God on a daily basis. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
allowing us to end on a high note by reveling and delighting in the resurrection of your son. Father, thank you for the the sovereign plan that was in your mind in eternity past, before any of us were born, before anything was created. And God, we are perplexed by the sinister plot, the plan that you developed, but sinful people carried out and executed. God, we give you the glory for developing that plan and recognize that we are accountable because we would have executed the son had we been there. Our sinful hearts are are so overwhelming. And then finally, and most importantly, we thank you for the risen Savior. We thank you that we leave today as a people filled with hope. And so my prayer is that for anyone who has come this morning, a, a guest or a friend or a family member, that they would turn from their sin and they would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're, you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel, a simple gospel, a plain gospel, and recognize your sin before a holy God, you, you recognize the verse that says, the soul that sins shall die, that you need to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Would you cry out to, to God and admit that you're a sinner, admit that you have violated his holy law, And even admit that you enjoyed doing it. And then thank him for sending Jesus to be the final payment for your sin. Thank Jesus for living a life that you could never live. For completely obeying the law of God. For fulfilling the law of God. For obeying God by going to the cross and and covering your sins. And thank God for raising Jesus from the dead. Ask Jesus to to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And you recall the words from Peter that anyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she will be saved. May it be said of every person in this room today. In Jesus' worthy name, amen.